Welcome to the first episode of Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles, a product of Lee Enterprises, the home to 75 daily newspapers in 26 states. My name is Chris Lay, and I'm currently the podcast operations manager for Lee, but I got my start with the company as an archivist at the Wisconsin State Journal. What we're going to be doing with this show is presenting notable true crime stories as reported by journalists working for the regional newspapers that covered them from the dozens of various Lee-owned publications around America. The plan is to spend five or six episodes on each individual story, with installments coming out on a weekly basis. We'll take a week or two off between stories to cleanse the palate, maybe sharing bonus content and special one-off episodes as we are able, all of which is to say, make sure that you are subscribed so you don't miss out on anything. For this first series, which will start in just a little bit, we're taking a short drive east of Tulsa, Oklahoma, to learn more about the state's most notorious cold case, the 1977 slaying of three Girl Scouts. Given the subject matter for this and presumably just about every story that we're going to document going forward, there are some obvious content warnings to impart. So while everything you hear uh, will be fit for print in a newspaper, Parents are cautioned to give the episode a listen before sharing this with any youngsters. What you're going to hear first is audio from a series of articles written by Tulsa World journalist Tim Stanley that were published in 2017 to mark the 40th anniversary of the tragedy. Since it might be worthwhile to set the cultural stage a bit before we get too much further, here are some notable moments in America from the first half of 1977 starting in January and going up to the week of the murders. Jimmy Carter had just moved into the White House, pardoning Vietnam draft dodgers on his way in the door. 100 million viewers had tuned in to ABC for the final episode of the miniseries Roots. A newly incorporated company called Apple released its first personal computer. Audiences packed theaters to see Smokey and the Bandit and something called Star Wars. And... Fleetwood Mac, Marvin Gaye, and Bill Conti's theme from Rocky topped the Billboard charts. Stay tuned after the article for my interview with Tim Stanley about his experiences reporting the series so many decades after the initial crime. For now, though, here's Tim reading Chapter 1, which is titled Into the Darkness. Darkness. Total, all-consuming darkness. Michelle Hoffman has never forgotten her first experience with it. My first year at Camp Scott, I remember going, whoa, because it is dark, dark, dark in those woods at night, she said. If you've never been camping in a platform tent in the deep woods, it's a little intimidating. After your first time there, she added, you get it. You're just prepared. It's going to be dark. For the Girl Scouts of the Tulsa-based Magic Empire Council, the dark nights were all part of the experience of Camp Scott, where their annual two-week summer camps were held. Hoffman was nine years old her first summer there. She had fallen in love with everything about it, she said, the hiking, swimming, the sleeping in tents, and had come back every year. Hoffman's seventh summer was going to be different, though. For one thing, she was no longer a camper. 
At 15, she had aged out. Instead, she would serve as an aide to the camp director. Something else was different, too, although Hoffman had no way of knowing it going in. Every summer up to then, despite what a little girl's imagination might sometimes conjure up, the night had not been hiding any real terrors. But that summer, in June 1977, there was something in the darkness at Camp Scott that had not been there before. On the morning of Sunday, June 12th, by the time Hoffman arrived at Girl Scout headquarters in Tulsa, the parking lot was already swarming. There were girls everywhere, she said, excited, loading up the buses. But in all the hubbub, one girl caught her eye. She just stood out to me, Hoffman said, recalling the first time she saw Denise Milner. A 10-year-old Girl Scout who was going to camp for the first time, Denise was one of the only African-American girls in the group. I could tell she was nervous, Hoffman said. Thinking she could use a little encouragement, Hoffman walked over and introduced herself to Denise and her mother, Betty Milner. Denise was feeling homesick, Betty told her, and not wanting to go. Why don't you come with me, Hoffman offered. We'll ride down together. Denise agreed, and the two claimed the front seat of their bus. Betty came on board with them to say goodbye, then left. But she came back again, just before the bus pulled out, Hoffman said. She wanted to ask me if Denise was still homesick tomorrow if I would help her to call home, she recalled. I assured her I would, although I knew full well we don't normally do that. You try to divert the kids from being homesick, and calling home does not help. On the hour and a half journey that followed, Denise mostly stayed quiet and stared out the window. Hoffman helped lead camp songs. She tried to talk to Denise a little, she said, doing her best to be encouraging. I kept saying, you're going to do great, you'll have a good time. In her 15-year-old wisdom, Hoffman added, she had no reason to doubt that. Located two miles from the town of Locust Grove in Mays County, about 50 miles from Tulsa, Camp Scott had been operated by the Girl Scouts since 1928. With a creek on site and occupying 410 acres of the area's densely wooded hill country, the camp was an ideal spot to leave civilization behind and was used by the Scouts year-round. The units, consisting of several campers' tents and a counselor's tent, were named after Indian tribes. The tents themselves, about 12 by 14 feet, canvas sides that could be rolled up, sat on wooden platforms and held four cots for sleeping. For the first two-week session in June 1977, more than 130 campers were attending, most of them from the Tulsa area. Arrival at Camp Scott, Hoffman said, was always a sort of stepping off. Turning off Oklahoma 82 on the Cookie Trail Road, the narrow route to the camp entrance, it was like the wilderness suddenly sprang to life, looming up on all sides. On the buses, the singing and talking would start to die down, and an expected hush fall over the campers. It's dark, Hoffman said. There's trees that line the road. It changes. You can feel people quiet down. It's like, well, here we are. Camp Scott was an important place for me, Hoffman said. It was really where I started growing up. Her hope, after the 1977 session, was to train to become a counselor, she said. And after that, who knew? One day she might even become camp director. That was her dream, she said. When the campers arrived on Sunday afternoon, things went according to plan. Spilling out of their buses, the girls scurried to find their units and tents, dropping off their sleeping bags and backpacks. Hoffman stuck with Denise. She helped her grab her things, she said, then together they went to find her tent in the Kiowa unit. When Hoffman saw it, she couldn't help smiling. It was the same tent in which she had spent one of her own summer camps. 
In fact, she told Denise, Kiowa tent number eight was pretty much her all-time favorite tent. Later, she had claimed it on her troops' camp outings. The tents were arranged in a horseshoe shape, and while technically the last one in the row, Hoffman liked it because it was close to the bathroom and the kitchen unit, she said. Once, she even wrote her name inside it. The canvas had been changed out, though, so it wasn't there anymore, she said. As the kids in the Kiowa unit began settling in, Carla Wilhite did her best to put names with faces, and Denise's face made a definite impression. She was just a beautiful and radiant child, said Wilhite, 18 at the time and one of three Kiowa counselors. She was the only African-American and a first-time camper, and I remember thinking we would want to make sure she had a good start and a great experience, both of which seemed likely. Denise and her tentmates, Michelle and Lori, had not known each other, but they appeared to be bonding quickly, Wilhite said. Individually, three of the quietest kids, their tent was just as loud and lively as many of the other tents, she said. Late Sunday evening, after some songs around the campfire, Hoppin returned to check on Denise. She found her getting ready for bed with her two new friends. Just as Hoffman had hoped, she seemed to be adjusting. Good night, see you in the morning, she told Denise cheerfully. A few minutes later, Hoppin was climbing into her own cot in another unit. The first day is exhausting, she said. You're wiped out from the sun and the excitement and the girls. Except for an early evening thunderstorm, which had given the camp a good soaking, everything had gone pretty much like normal, Hoffman added. She just knew everyone would sleep well and wake up ready for a fun Monday. Around the camp, one by one, lights went out. Before turning in, a lot of the girls engaged in a little horseplay with their flashlights. One of them was 10-year-old Amy Sullivan. Another first-time camper, she wrote in her diary that night by flashlight. When she finally switched it off, the last in her tent to do so, she remembers the feeling of being swallowed up by darkness. It was the darkest dark I had ever known, she said, adding it was both a little scary and a little magical at the same time. I couldn't tell if my eyes were open or shut. Sullivan didn't know it then, but that darkness would stay with her. It became my personal measure of any darkness from that night forward and ever after, she said. Not only could the campers not see anything, not much could be heard either. The platform tents were sturdy structures and the trees and undergrowth crowding in helped absorb sound. Gradually, the giggles subsided. The girls drifted off. By 8 a.m. Monday, June 13th, just as Tulsa area residents were getting the work week started, the first news reports were beginning to break. At first, it sounded too strange, the kind of news you ask to hear a second time, and then a third, to make sure you understand. Three Girl Scouts had been found dead at Camp Scott near Locust Grove. The reports differed initially over the circumstances, whether the deaths were foul play or some freak mishap. But as the morning advanced, more details emerged, and they were shocking. Three Tulsa Girl Scouts had been beaten to death overnight at Camp Scott. Initial evidence indicated that they had also been raped. Police were looking for a killer or killers. Just under 24 hours earlier, they had been dropping their daughters off for camp and saying their goodbyes. Now, the families began to get the alarming news about the deaths. They heard it in different ways. One mother was at a beauty shop when the news came over the radio there. They were about to blow my hair dry, and I rushed to the phone and called my husband, she told a reporter later. Through scouts' officials, families were able to learn that the buses would be bringing their children back to Tulsa, and before noon, they began gathering at the council building in anticipation. 
There, huddled in groups, some inside, others on the lawn, they waited. Although they knew that the victims' families had been informed, most of those on hand were firm in their agreement. They would not, could not, rest until they saw their child step off that bus. That would take a while, and the waiting only fed the tension. I won't believe she's all right until I see her, one mother told a reporter. As she walked back and forth, the woman patted other parents on their arms, as if by reassuring others she was reassuring herself. About 2.15 p.m., the three Greyhound buses finally arrived. Before the doors even opened, the waiting group surged forward, straining for a glimpse, the Tulsa Tribune reported. As the campers began, one at a time to emerge, more than a few of the adults fought back tears. The campers still knew nothing of what had happened, and the scene before them, parents, news cameras, and vans, only added to their confusion. I think every single one of us on the buses just stood up when we saw them all, said Sullivan, the camper who'd been writing in her diary the night before. It was like a mob scene. Explanations for most would have to wait, though. Sullivan remembers her grandmother, who picked her up because her parents were in Dallas, looking distraught as she came out of the crowd. Together, they collected her things and then drove away. A few minutes later, at a stoplight, Sullivan recalled, I remember looking at her very closely. I asked her what happened. Oh, honey, her grandmother replied, crying. Three girls were killed at your camp last night. Killed, Sullivan asked. The word didn't quite register. Killed. At camp, while I slept? I could not understand how that could be. Among the girls on the buses, she said, the rumors had been swirling. However, the possibility of a tragedy didn't enter my ten-year-old brain. The light turned green, and her grandmother accelerated. But the tears on her cheeks, Sullivan remembers, stayed there as if frozen. That night in her diary, after her own tears had finally come, Sullivan tried to sum up the day. I came home from camp, she wrote, because something happened at camp. Three girls got killed. Sullivan doesn't remember when, but sometime later she crossed out killed, and above it wrote murdered. Before this, she said, I didn't even know what that word meant. After the buses had left Camp Scott for Tulsa, Michelle Hoffman stayed behind, helping camp officials as they assisted authorities. Unable to even begin absorbing what had happened, she spent much of the day, she said, answering the main office phone. It rang constantly, with calls coming in from media around the world. Hoffman finally got back to Tulsa that evening. Met by her mother, she said, it was then, for the first time all day, that she cried. For some reason, seeing my mother made it real, she said. The worst moment, though, wouldn't come for a few days. Hoffman still remembers how it hit her, the terrible revelation. Sitting in the living room with her parents, she was poring over the newspaper and the latest reports about the murders. For the umpteenth time, she looked at the victims' faces, read the names. Lori Lee Farmer, Michelle Gousset, Doris Denise Milner. And suddenly, Hoppin felt very sick. The bus ride to camp flashed in her mind, then the bedtime check-in. Good night, see you in the morning. Suddenly, it all came back. Up to that moment, the first name Doris and the artificial quality of the photo had thrown her, kept her from making the connection. Oh my God, Mom, Hoppin blurted out holding up the newspaper. This is the girl I rode the bus with. This is Denise.
What you just heard was the first of six articles written in 2017 by Tim Stanley for the Tulsa World, as read by the author. Now, we're going to go to the first of my conversations with Tim about the articles, all of which can be found on the Tulsa World site, presented with some incredible new photos alongside images from the newspaper's archives. Links to all of those articles can be found in the show notes. The first article, which is primarily about uh, like Amy Sullivan, Michelle Hoffman, and their involvement with the camp, you introduce what the camp was like. And um, well, I guess, first of all, how long have you been uh, working at Tulsa World? I've been uh, with the Tulsa World since um, 2001, I think. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, quite a while. And, you know, it's I, not to get off into the weeds too much, but just on that note, um, that was my introduction to Tulsa. I, I came here from the Fayetteville, Arkansas area and a newspaper mm-hmm. in Arkansas. And it was not wasn't that long after I got to Tulsa and started working for the world that I first became aware of this story. And it was at that time, um, I didn't have kids of my own then. I was married, but uh, we we didn't have kids. We've since been blessed with two daughters. Um, But when I first heard, uh, I don't remember who was talking about it, but, but my take on it, or at least the way it was framed, was that this terrible thing had happened in uh, the Tulsa area, you know, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago at that time, um, or even 25. And, um, you know, these three Girl Scouts were murdered. And it was just, it was a terrible thing, a huge news story that went on for more than a year. And they did catch the guy who did it, but he got away with it. But after he got away with it, he suddenly died just after that in prison. That was the substance of what I understood about the story. And you see it's framed in a certain way. And we can talk about that as we go forward with this. But you know, most people in the Tulsa area have a, a certain take on it. Yeah. And that would be it. Um, you ask people in, in Mays County, they may have a different spin on it. But that was that was all I knew about it. But from the very first, from those details, I mean, it just kind of stuck in my mind. And I, I found it to be kind of a haunting thing. I'm like, you're, you're kidding me. These three Girl Scouts were murdered. I mean, that's just that's shocking. It's horrible. And then, and then they had the guy, but he got away with it. But that that's where it started. Now, obviously, it would be, you know, a number of years before I, I learned more about it. And then this opportunity to do this project came up. But I do distinctly remember you know, being new to Tulsa mm-hmm. and hearing somebody talk about it uh, framed in that way. And and so that's how, you know, it first came into my mind. I was not aware of it, yeah. of the story, you know, uh, being from Arkansas. I, it was a national news story in its day, but, you know, a lot of people outside of Oklahoma will not remember it. In the, the first article of the series, it mentions that, you know, the, the day after, um, or I mean, the day that the bodies were found, that the the camp was getting inundated with calls from around the yeah. world, you know, news sources that were interested uh, in in covering it in in some way. And it's most kids go to camp at some point. And 
the idea of, you know, like the campfire stories, the boogeyman, the whatever. I mean, this is something that is a real life version of that, you know, stepping out of tales designed to, to scare kids into something that, you know, was a, a real tragedy for an area. Um, and, you know, obviously still resonates. Yes, even now. Yeah. It's a part of what I think makes the story, um, what makes it really stick in, in your mind and, and become something that, that you can't quite let go of is the setting itself. The fact of where these things happen, you're right, a camp setting, you know, that's not supposed to happen, right? Even now, and we're, we're talking in the 70s, but even now, I mean, you know, in the world we're in at this point, uh, to think of something like that happen happening is just, well, it's unthinkable. I mean, we're talking about the Girl Scouts, we're talking about summer camp, you know, these are uniquely almost all American institutions, you know, time honored, something all American kids have been have participated in a summer camp at some time. And, you know, so the crimes themselves seem really incongruous to their settings. And I think, you know, that's part of what um, that has made the story uh, last like it has. I mean, yeah, not that if they had been killed in some other setting or in some other way that it wouldn't have been just as horrible, but you know, the fact that it was uh, a Girl Scout camp out, you know, definitely, I think, affected people then and mm -hmm. and still does when they hear this story. And it's the, you know, the the other side of it is that, as you mentioned, um, and is will be covered in later chapters, is, um, you know, that it's, it's still unresolved. Um, I mean, it, you know, so far as you can say this guy did it with a certain amount of certainty, but in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of people looking for, for justice and, you know, a, uh, a sense of, of restored security, you know, it's just not there. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and that's, that's one of the maddening things about it is that there is no final answer and, you know, having met the families and that, that's where it really gets you is if you, you know, some, sometimes what we do in this business, I mean, we're in the business of empathy. We're, we're in the business of helping people step into other people's shoes and experience an event or, or just life in general as these people have experienced it. And I hope the stories were able to do that as far as with these families. And, you know, that's where, you know, you keep coming back to when you've been through something like that, I mean, everybody deals with it in their own way. And each one of these families, I mean, they had their own unique way of grieving and then ultimately dealing with it. But at the end of the day, they still don't have a final answer. And that is the thing that it's just, it's really hard unless you've been through something like that. I'm, I'm not even sure, you know, having met them and interviewed them that I can fully appreciate that. But uh, yeah, that that's still just kind of hanging there, you know, that, that question, final, you know, what what really did happen that night? Who did this? You mentioned uh, talking with the parents and other people. Uh, how did how did all that come about? How, how long were you working on the article before it came out as as, as part of the series? And um, you know how long did the actual like reporting process take? I first pitched the story a year 
before I knew that the 40th anniversary of the crime was coming up and this was would be in June of 2017 I think yeah it's 2020 uh, <laughs> this is 2017 so three years ago but it was about a year mm -hmm. before that that we were just knocking ideas around and I said you know I might like to do something uh you know in connection with the 40th anniversary of the Girl Scout murders and um they liked that idea uh, my bosses and so a, a year out, um, I had an idea at least that I wanted to do some kind of a series on it. And uh, as the weeks you know went on, I began to just kind of uh, pick around here and there. I put together a, a spreadsheet and um, well, and to come up with the the names of the people that I knew uh, I was going to want to try to interview. Uh, we have, uh, you know, our archives, of course, and we also we have the Tulsa world. That's um, our archives. But we also have the archives of our uh, sister paper at that time, the Tulsa mm -hmm. Tribune, uh, which they, they no longer exist. They closed in the 90s. But so I had those two I had access to the archives. Um, so a lot of stories. It was amazing to me just uh, how much ink had been spilled, you know, on this story. But I had that, and so I started going through those and learning more about the, the event itself, the crimes and those involved. But I put together a spreadsheet early on, and um, so, you know, a few more weeks passed, and, you know, we were probably getting towards the end of that year. So I, I, my thought was, at that point, I knew I wanted to do five or six story series, and I had an idea of how I wanted to break it down. So I reached out before I did anything else. I, I said, you know what? The most important thing is, because it would make or break it, the most important thing is, would the families be willing to participate? Um, because, you know, if they weren't, that changed everything. I mean, it's a non-starter. It, yeah. it goes from a five or six story series to some kind of probably just one story. If that, yeah. Just your typical anniversary piece without the families participating, just a lot of rehash from old articles and, and maybe a couple of officials, um, which is, that's absolutely what I did not want. But I reached out to the families. I started uh, with uh, Sherry Farmer, uh, Sherry and Bo Farmer. Uh, it's Lori Farmer's parents, uh, Lori being one of the girls who, who was killed. And uh, then uh, also Betty Milner, uh, who's uh, Denise Milner's mother, um, single mom. Uh, then the Gousset family, uh, Richard Gousset, uh, Mich Michelle Gousset's father. Immediately, uh, Betty Milner and uh, Sherry Farmer, they were receptive. But I could tell there was some, you know, they knew to expect being a 40th anniversary that there would be uh, reporters probably interested in calling them. Um, but I, what I did, and I, and I did not have any success with Richard Gousset, but I'll save that for, I, I went to Sherry and I went to Betty. And um, what I decided to do was just meet with them initially, just to give them almost a chance to interview me, so to speak, just so they could get an idea of who I was and get comfortable with me. Cause that's what I wanted to do mm -hmm. was establish some trust there. If I'm going to do this story and I'm going to write about their you know, their kids and about their experiences. I wanted them to trust me. So I did that. And uh, so I did, I established that, that trust with them that went well. 
And then later we set up, you know, more formal interviews with them. So that's how I approached that. Since two of the three families were on board, uh, I knew we could proceed. Now, the matter of uh, the Gousses, uh, that was a different situation. Now, I did talk to Richard, um, who has, I'm sad to say, has since passed away, I think just last year. But um, now he was kind enough to get back with me, which is something he had actually did not really do. They've really been, their position has been to kind of withdraw um, and not talk about this anymore for about the last 20 years. They had done interviews, I think, through the decade of the 80s, um, but they had decided uh, that that was not in their family's best interest. And, and of course, they're the best ones to decide that. Of course. And, um, you know, that was it was just too painful for them to to do that anymore. Now, he called me and he explained that to me. He said, honestly, I don't know why you want to do this. He said, there have been other people who've written about it. There, There's enough out there. Uh, but he, uh, I did feel like by the time, you know, our conversation was over that I more or less had his blessing. But he said that he would help me if I needed any help, you know, off the record or but just they were not going to participate in any kind of formal way. You know, and that's one of those things you you just have to accept in a situation like this. And I mean, my true rule of thumb in approaching any story, especially something like this, is I want to I want to be sensitive and I want to be respectful. You know, so I completely um, understood his position and was okay with that. And and I was glad that uh, you know that we had a chance to talk. Yeah. We were going to have to figure out some way to tell their story, but we were going to have to largely rely on interviews that had been done in the past. So, you know, once I had that knocked out, I think this would have been, this would have probably been in uh, November, December of 2016. So we, you know, we're probably six or seven months out and I had a, you know, a lengthy list of people that I wanted to talk to and I began to reach out with them and set some things up. I would say that probably the bulk of the interviews were done in February of 2017. So that would be, about, uh, so our run date was June, the second week of June, 2017. So that year, so, you know, we're talking about uh, four and a half months, four or five months out is when I did the bulk of the interviews. You know, I would say, you know, that's where it really when it kicked into high gear. And I, although we, you know, I, I had a year to work on the project. Obviously, that was not the only thing I was working on. I, I just kind of had to work on it when I could. And then as we got closer, it, you know, I could dedicate more time to it. Mm -hmm. But I was, uh, you know, in retrospect, just looking back on it, you know, really, it was the it was the interviews um, starting with the families, you know, that really helped make the series. One of them in this one, Michelle Hoffman, um, she was absolutely critical to how this turned out. I mean, she was, uh, she was really helpful and she was coming from a position that being one of the, the counselors, you know, th those guys had never really talked about this publicly and what it was like for them. That it was just not something that anyone was interested in over the years, so much their perspective, at least they thought, you know, Michelle, she was for this first story, she gave us someone who, you know, had a personal connection with one of the girls 
on that day, on the day of the crime. So, you know, Michelle first saw Denise Milner in the parking lot as they were loading up the buses in Tulsa to go to camp. Uh, Denise was crying, uh, clearly was not real happy about uh, leaving home to go to camp. I think she had been gung-ho about it, but if any, if you've ever been to camp, you know how that goes. And her mother, she was there with her mother, Betty, um, who we interviewed, and it was actually Betty who connected us to Michelle, but um, Michelle uh, saw her. Uh, as Michelle told us, and I think it's mentioned maybe in that first story, uh, the Girl Scouts at that time was a largely uh, white um, institution. Um, and here you had an African-American child. And um, so, I mean, Michelle saw her and saw that she was upset. And she thought, you know, you know, maybe even being African-American in that largely white setting, she probably felt extra awkward. And so Michelle really uh, had a heart for her in that moment and wanted to, to reach out and help her. And so she actually rode with her on the bus. Um, going down there. Uh, I think she says that they didn't talk too much. Denise kind of looked out the windows. What I'm getting at with all this is that was that helped put all of us, that helped put me as the writer, that helps put the readers kind of in that setting. And it helps us connect with one of the girls, with Denise, um, through Michelle's eyes. And I think it's, it's just really important to how that whole first story works. And so we yeah. follow. And then Michelle was even potentially the last um, of the counselors, the last person possibly uh, to see those girls alive. She checked in on, to check in on Denise, still concerned about her. She went to her tent that night, um, you know, before lights out, uh, just to check on her. And she saw that she had, uh, was making friends with her two tent mates, Michelle and Maury. And so she left her that night feeling uh, pretty comfortable that, you know, Denise was settling in and that she was gonna be okay. But finding Michelle, and as Michelle told me later, um, you know, she really appreciated the opportunity to tell her story because um, had Michelle been contacted previously by anyone? Had she gone on the record in, in any no, other context? No, we were the, we were the first ones to do an interview with her, and I think what happened with Michelle. Yeah, a lot of, and I, I can't remember exactly, but I think Michelle and a lot of the other camp personnel, because, um, you know, the, all the staff members, we're talking uh, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, you know, right there. They're all young, late teens. A lot of them, you know, had just, after this was over, you know, they all went home um, after that first day and, you know, the after the murders. And of course, they all would be questioned by authorities and be part of the case in that way. But, you know, beyond that, uh, you know, they were they were largely an afterthought. I can't tell that there was ever really any uh, effort, you know, from any of our reporters, you know, to reach out to them. I mean, there were always other people, you know, at least when this case was unfolding that you wanted to talk to. And that was obviously the families. And, you know, I think early on, too, since, I mean, the Girl Scouts really kind of circled the wagons. I mean, it's it's understandable. Uh, it's it's also, I mean, they're, they could certainly be criticized for it, too, the way it was handled. In approaching this and trying to repackage it for, you know, a national audience, I mean, that's something that is 
maybe not weighed on me, but has been rattling around in the back of my head is just how unfortunate it is that this one uh, moment in history has been saddled with the name Girl Scout murders. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost been branded that way. I mean, and that's what it's known as the, uh, here it's the Girl Scout murders. If people have heard of it outside of Oklahoma, it's the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders. And, you know, to, to that point, I mean, Sherry Farmer, Lori's mom said, that's one of the things that's always kind of bothered her that the fact that, you know, in the media from the beginning, her daughter has always been, you know, a Girl Scout Mm-hmm. And Lori was new to the Girl Scouts, um, and this was her first summer camp. And so in Sherry's mind, and certainly in the mind of Lori's family, being a Girl Scout was a very small part of who she was. In fact, it it was, uh, again, something that was very new. She, there was so much more to Lori than just that part of her life. And yet here she is you know, sort of immortalized in the minds of media consumers and and newspaper readers as, as a Girl Scout, you know, and that's one thing she said to me, she said, Lori was so much more than a Girl Scout, but that's how she'll be remembered. Yeah. Which, you know, that's uh, unfortunately kind of the nature of, of an event like this and particularly that setting while it can easily, even for me as a reporter and a writer, you know, I've written about some of these things that you kind of, don't think about that sometimes. I mean, people were so much more than, um, you know, what they were in that one horrible event, you know, that, uh, that happened to them and, you know, whatever that situation was. Yeah. It forces you to kind of recalibrate, um, your framing of, of the people, not only in this, but in any other instance that you might write about. Exactly. Yeah. Bottom line, I've grown through this. I mean, you can't help but grow, I think, and and see things in different ways and become more sensitive overall to certain things. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, you know, I thank the families for helping me do that, particularly Sherry and and Betty. Uh, but yeah, one of the you know most indelible images from this first uh, installment was another from another interview subject that I'm assuming you were probably, you know, one of the first people to talk to, but, uh, Amy Sullivan. Yeah. I mean, for obvious reasons, reporters aren't, aren't going to interview, you know, someone who was, who was that young at the time, but given the time that has transpired since then, uh, you can kind of come back to it and the image of her writing in her diary. Oh yeah. 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 It gives you as the reader, a child's perspective on, on this and how completely foreign to a child that age, something like this would have been and would still be now. I mean, for most children and certainly how do you wrap wrap your head around that? Yeah. Amy, uh, Amy was also very helpful and and she was another good find. And and I think it was Michelle that helped me connect with her and, uh, yeah, Amy, uh, Amy comes up in another story in the series because she is, uh, I can't remember um, exactly what she's doing now, but she did a thesis uh, when she was in, in college in which she, uh, she talked about the crime. And so she had, uh, it's something that she had wrestled with over the years, but the ability to talk to her and just have, you know, at least one of the kids, then kids who was there that night, 
uh, yeah, Amy was, uh, Amy was a great uh, interview and she was uh, very generous in, in sharing her time with us. One of the things that kind of jumped out at me uh, hearing you read it and, you know, seeing it on the page, the story is written with a, a more prose style than I think a lot of newspaper stories of, of this nature might've been. Was that something that you were aware of? going into it or am I, you know, potentially just way off base even oh, <laughs> perceiving I, I it as such? Other people have, yeah, I, I'm not, in fact, this was really the first project of this kind that I'd done. I'd written individual stories um, related to uh, crime victims, but that's not even necessarily a beat of mine. That was just something that I would do as more of a general assignment reporter from time to time. I'd done some of those things. But I thought that, you know, really there hasn't been a lot written about this compared to other high-profile murder cases. I mean, I just thought it merited something that merited something more. And I wanted it to be immersive. And I wanted it to be, you know, something that uh, would put people there, uh, help them again, they use that word empathy, but help people kind of step into the, the shoes of the different people who experienced this. Yeah, I, it's that's kind of a style that I've I've developed. I like doing more prose-like writing uh, in journalism, but I I hope that you know, given just the lack of things that there were out there on this subject mm-hmm. prior to the series, I, I kind of hope that that we kind of created the definitive telling of this story. And I want to emphasize we, because even though my name is on it, this was very much a team project and there were many components to it. I can't say enough about, you know, our photographers involvement in it. Um, they took it to heart and they did some really good stuff. We got, we got into Camp Scott and that's something we can talk about, you know, as we go forward, but uh, we got access to the site and that was not easy. Um, and we, they're, reasons for that but um we got in there and we got uh, you know footage from you know from the uh from the old camp which has you know been shut down since that day that never opened again as a camp for pretty understandable reasons i mean going back to what i was saying with you know the the campfire stories and everything i mean this is like if you know crystal lake reopened after you know i mean like i mean obviously that's I don't use that example to do a disservice or anything. Oh, to... I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean, if real and you'd had a series of murders uh, at a real camp, yeah, that that would it would never be a camp again. It just couldn't. Yeah. And so it, now it's a it's a private lease and it's uh, you know used for hunting. At least part of it is a vast property. I can't remember how many acres. Anyway, we were able to get in there, and and my saying all that to say that uh, you know there are visual elements to this that uh, really, I think, took it to another level. There's a timeline for people to explore. You have the photos that the photographers took, and you also have a, uh, you ransacked the the archives, your photo archives, to go and, you know, get a bunch of old, uh, you know, press press photos and clippings yeah. uh, and, you know, digitize those. For, for anybody who wants to take a deep dive, you know, on this, I mean, you know, that opportunity's there. We've got, uh, there's a lot to this project uh, beyond just um, just the stories themselves. But, um, you know, yeah, definitely uh, 
you can you can just read the stories, or if you want to go deeper, we've got some got some other stuff uh, through our website. Well, um, the overall effect is is one of you know great empathy towards towards the victims and and the families and everybody else involved, and I've really enjoyed uh, going through it. And the next episode is uh, chapter two, which is the manhunt for Gene uh, Leroy Hart. Yes. And he doesn't, we don't even, he's not even mentioned in story one. So yeah, we, uh, even though he is obviously a major player in this story, yeah. and, uh, whatever, whatever you believe about him, you know, at the end of the day, after you've read all of this or, or really studied this, you know, he's, he is a central figure. And um, so, yeah, we can talk about him uh, a little more next time. Thanks for tuning in for the first episode of Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles. There's a lot more where that came from just over the horizon, so make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. As I said earlier, there are a ton of great additional resources that you can explore on the Tulsa World site, which you'll be able to find links to in the show notes below. The show was produced, recorded, and edited by me, Chris Lay with tremendous thanks to Tim Stanley and the rest of the team at the Tulsa World for the work they put in reporting the series in 2017. For Lee Enterprises, I'm Chris Lay.